Our God and Father, Lord, we are grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the amazing love which he displayed to us through his cross. We thank you, Lord, that in his perfect life, he discharged all of the preceptive requirements of your law, and he merited for us your perfect righteousness that is imputed to us when we believe in him and trust in him for that righteousness. We thank you for his life and death and all that it is to us and for us. And God, we do praise and adore our Lord Jesus Christ. We lift him up and exalt him. And Father, we pray that we would respond with lives of obedience, with a pursuit of holiness and and with a zeal and a passion, God, to honor him in all that we say and all that we do. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in our faith, that we might carry this out, and that, Lord, we would walk in a manner worthy of you and of your Son, even Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place today and to look closely at your word. I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes and cause us to see clearly what you have said to us there. And uh, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to freely gather in this place and to worship and praise you and to preach your word without reservation. God, it is a great privilege, and we're grateful for it. Because of Jesus' precious blood, we pray. Amen. Okay. So with that, we're back in our text of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, last week, we got through the end of chapter 2. And uh, this morning, moving into the next section, on the notes, we're starting at the bottom of page 105. And uh, this section really is comprised of the verses uh, 1 through 5. Because in verse 6, Paul changes his, his uh, discussion just a little bit. And, and really, this, uh, this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, is kind of a continuation of chapter 2, if you will. The discussion beginning in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in verse 13 of chapter 2, when Paul begins to draw a contrast between those who are perishing and refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And he draws a contrast between the Thessalonian Christians who he says... God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so he's drawing the contrast between those who are perishing and being deceived by Antichrist and by the world and those who have been chosen and set apart by God for salvation. And he is, if you will, carrying on that conversation on through the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Uh, and what's in view there at the end of chapter 2, and also in this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul is, is discussing God's sovereignty in all of salvation. And of course, in verse 13, he points to uh, that which God has done in eternity past, in divine election. Um, but then he goes into a discussion of how that works itself out in a calling that comes from God and through a sanctification process by the Spirit and how that is ascertained by faith in the truth. And yet he goes on to say that, uh, that God might strengthen us with his power for every good 
work and word, he says. And he talks about how God is even uh, the motivating uh, influence in our life when it comes to uh, those things which we carry out in the Christian life, which he describes as every good work and deed. And he says that God motivates that in us by eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And he talks about God's work of encouraging us and strengthening us and seeing us through even into the good works that we do. And so, if you will, he's, he's pointing to God's sovereignty in the process of sanctification. And he's talking about how God's influence works in us to sanctify us. Well, that's the ongoing discussion into chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. What really is in view here is God's faithfulness both to help us and uphold us and to strengthen us in our faith and see us through. It is, if you will, God's sovereignty in our perseverance. God's sovereignty in our perseverance. And so, if you will, this whole section of chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 5, is really a discussion of how God is sovereign in the whole process of sanctification not uh, of, of salvation, not only in eternity past, but even in what's going on right now in the present and also at our future glorification. All those things are in view in this section of text. So if you will, uh, that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, where Paul writes and says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So, if you will, Paul uses this word finally again, and um, as is in Paul, he is very orderly in the way that he writes, and uh, if you will, he's kind of saying, well, I'm going to bring some things to a close here. And uh, he goes on then to talk about, or if you will, make a request that they would be praying for him. Here is now Paul's closing statements as indicated by, finally, brethren. He means to address those few issues which still remain necessary for the Thessalonians after Timothy's visit to them. Paul requests that they would pray for us, a frequent request of Paul. And I give you a list of scriptures there where Paul is requesting prayer. And his specific request is that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Learn here that the apostle believes that prayer is an effective means for bringing about God's will in the world. Even as we strive to carry out God's will, with our own hands. It's kind of an interesting thing, you know. Pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. Well, well, couldn't Paul have just said, Hey, all you Thessalonians, get off your duff and go start preaching the gospel. Are you with me? Because how does the word of the Lord spread rapidly? Yeah, sure it does. It sure, sure it does. By, by, you know, how can they believe unless someone is sent, Right. And, and um, how can they believe unless someone preaches? Amen? So we have the, necess- the necessity to go. And yet, Paul says, pray to God that this will happen. Why? Because God is sovereign in the spread of the gospel. 
All right? Amen? You remember Paul this is getting a vision in the middle of the night, and the angel's saying, hey, don't go over there. Go over there. Recall that? You see, God is very involved in how the gospel spreads and where the gospel spreads and when the gospel spreads and in, in what degree it takes root, right? All of those things are in the hands of God's providence. And yet, at the same time, we are the means by which he carries it out. Amen? And so there's always this tension in Scripture, if you will, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's always in view. And many look at that and they say, well, that's a contradiction in terms. Well, it's really not a contradiction in terms. It's just the fact that God is providential in his creation, bringing about his expected end. Everything that happens in history happens at the express decree of God, period. If God doesn't want it to happen, guess what? He intervenes and keeps it from happening, right? And so, if you will, <clears throat> whatever's happening in the world is the sovereign will of God. And of course, like I was saying, maybe we'll dig into that here in a few weeks. But nevertheless, God has means by which he carries out his will and his way. Sometimes those means are a donkey, right? And sometimes those means are great wind and waves. And sometimes those means are a still small voice. And other times those means are some divine activity that leaves us all wondering what in the world has gone on here. Amen? But nevertheless, God has means by which he carries out his work and his will in the world. And I think it's very clearly seen in this request of Paul. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And Paul's asking for God's involvement in his very activity. Amen? And so, if you will, yes, Paul has a human responsibility, and by his free choices, he's going about spreading the word of the Lord and glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, he's asking that the church would intercede for him and ask that his work would be effective by the hand of God's good providence. Do you see that? That's an important thing to see here. Prayer is an effective means for bringing about God's will in the world. Do you believe that prayer changes things? Yes. I hope so. Yeah. Paul certainly does. Amen? I don't think he's confused about that. We don't just pray and sit idly by, awaiting God to somehow spread the gospel, but rather we, like Paul, both pray to God and work diligently to carry out his will in the world. Amen? Here specifically, that the gospel would spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. <clears throat> of course, he refers to that amazing miracle of evangelical service that took place from the revival that broke out as a result of the Thessalonians' obedience to the Great Commission, which Paul had mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. And so, um, he's, when he says... Just as it did also with you, Paul says, 
Pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, right? Just as it also did with you. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to what happened to the Thessalonians when they listened to what Paul said and they went out and did what Paul commanded. And at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he writes, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, Jesus was a gospel preacher. Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God and preaching the salvation of God. He was on mission. You understand? And then he trained the apostles for three and a half years to go out and do likewise. And at the end of his life, right? Famous last words, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, if you will, those apostles got up and did exactly what the Lord trained them and commanded them to do, right? And um, <clears throat> here, Paul says, these, this young Thessalonian church, listen, became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? Being gospel preachers. That's how. Going out and making disciples. They became imitators in that way. Here's what he says, verse 6. Having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The Thessalonians had accomplished a remarkable thing that even in this short period of time they had to be called out of the world of darkness and discipled by the apostles. In just three or four short weeks, the angry Jews had run the apostles out of town and here's left this fledgling church, this young group of baby Christians who had been given all of this intense discipleship by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And then, through their ready obedience, they went out and started spreading the word of the Lord. And guess what? The word of the Lord spread rapidly and was glorified. That's what Paul's saying. He says, pray for us that that will happen with us, just like it also did with you. Here the apostle teaches that revival happens by means of both prayer and obedience. Surely our hearts are stirred as we read about these young Thessalonian believers, wondering if God would be so gracious as to carry out such a great work among us if we would simply look to God in prayer and then simply carry out what he has commanded. <clears throat> but Paul not only requests that the gospel should go forth with power, but that he would be kept safe from the harm of those unbelieving heathens who would harm a Christian missionary. You see, Paul mentions that uh, they would also pray for his safety. Even though the Christian comes in peace, bearing the message of peace with no sword in hand, the sons of the devil would seek his life. Paul requests prayer, not only for himself, but also for the Thessalonians, as verse 3 indicates. His request that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. 
Here he identifies the fact that the reason that perverse and evil men persecute Christians is that they do not have faith. Some argue that Paul speaks here specifically of those Jews who are enraged to violence by the gospel, who sought his harm in the Greco-Roman world. You know what happened to Paul everywhere he went. He was run out of town by angry Jews. (laughs) Well, part of that is because his practice was to go into the synagogue. And by his knowledge of Judaism, he could gain a platform in, in a synagogue. And he could speak. He could speak very intelligently and with much authority concerning Judaism and its fulfillment, which was, of course, the kingdom of God having come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, when he'd go into a town, man, he'd look for the synagogue. And he'd go right there, and he'd start reasoning with those Jews from the Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. And for some, and by God's good providence, that would sink in. But it wasn't long before they would become agitated with Paul. And, of course, you're familiar with the stories. They beat him up. They even killed him. Or so would the scripture say, something like that, right? They beat him half to death and drug him outside and left him outside the city for dead, it says, right? Might not have been dead, but he sure looked like he was dead, <laughs> right? Well, that's how they would treat Paul, because they didn't like what Paul was saying, really, because they hated the Lord Jesus Christ, such as Jesus promised. They hated me first, and they're going to hate you. If they would obey me, they would obey you. Well, so this was Paul's practice, and of course, everywhere he went, these angry Jews were there, but it wasn't just angry Jews. There were many times where Gentiles were the ones who were scorning Paul and his friends and beating them half to death, it seemed like, everywhere they went. You know, that gospel thing is a, it's a real trial for those of us who make idols. <clears throat> Regardless of whether or not it was the Jews or the Gentiles, we know it was the persecutors who were in view. And we know that people of true saving faith actually propagate the gospel in contrast to perverse and evil men who do not have faith. And so, if you will, in these verses we, we see uh, that not only is Paul praying for his own safety, but he's also praying for the safety of the Thessalonians, which verse 3 indicates when he says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you, he says, from the evil one. And so, if you will... He's not only asking for prayer for his own personal safety in in his evangelistic efforts, but also he is saying that God is also going to strengthen and protect them. And so he writes in verses 3 through 5, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And so here again, he is pointing to God's sovereignty and he's pointing to God's providence and he's pointing to God's faithfulness. 
And he's saying, look, look at God's nature. And even though we pray, listen, God is faithful. God's going to do his part. What's his part? To strengthen and protect you, right? And so here Paul, again, points to God and shows his sovereignty in, in, in our protection and in our strength. Yet again, Paul will remind them of the fact that their security in the faith is in the hands of God and reminds them that the Lord is faithful. And what is he faithful to do? To strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Notice how Paul shifts the emphasis from himself and his own persecution to the Thessalonians and their security from the evil one because of God's strength and protection. You know, there's this idea that he's just come out of this long discussion about the Antichrist and about the amazing deception that Antichrist is going to perform in his day and in his time. And yet here he says to the Thessalonians, again, giving them more reassurance, right, that the Lord is faithful and he's going to strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Dear Christian, see here a powerful and magnificent promise from God. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Can you draw security from that? When you read about the great deception of the last days, do you often tremble a bit thinking, my, I sure don't want to be swept away in that deception. Amen? Well, here's what Paul says. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Amen? Amen. Where does our faith lie? Or should I say, in whom does our faith lie? Amen? And on whom have we believed? Even the faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who I'll remind you is the good shepherd. And he will lose none of all that the Father has given him. Amen? And that includes you. Why? Because you believe the gospel which we preached unto you. Amen? You believe it? All right. Praise the Lord. Learn here that if a Christian sheep were to fall prey to the deception of the evil one to the point of perishing, it will be at the failure of God to strengthen and protect them. As this verse plainly describes Christ's office of a shepherd, as effective to protect us from the deception of that wolf. And this, we know, is not possible because God is faithful to both strengthen and protect us from his deception. And Paul clearly ascribes our perseverance to the keeping power of Christ and his faithfulness. Amen? Christian. Your salvation is secure in the hands of God. Believe it? Rest. Rest. And with all the holy zeal you can muster, obey. Amen? Listen, you're not going to see yourself through till the end. Jesus is. And yet, he commands us, to persevere until the end. Amen? And there's that paradox again of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
No one's going to get to heaven who doesn't persevere in the faith. But when they persevere, they will do it by God's strength. Amen? Any questions on that? Sound confusing? No? I don't think so. It's rather clear. Amen? Happy to answer any questions, though. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <coughs> many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and do many miracles in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Right? And so the question is, how do we explain this truth, Right? That there are, if you will, among the body of professing Christians, right? Many who are only mere professors and not true believers, right? Because that's a truth. That's a very important truth. Amen? That, that there are among every body of professing Christians, some who are ingenuine, Right? And some who even appear to be casting out demons and doing many miracles in the name of Christ and prophesying and preaching the word of God. And yet Jesus will say to them in the last day, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Well, regardless of their profession, right? What was the fruit of their life? Does not Jesus point that out clearly when he says, Away from me, you workers of iniquity? And why then were they also workers of iniquity? He answers that too. I never knew you. You see, they didn't have that true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that produces the the works of a believer. Amen? And so, if you will... This is a matter of fact within the kingdom of God, within the visible professing kingdom of God. There are mere professors who are not true believers. And upon an examination of their life very closely would probably show us very clearly that they are not of Christ. Why? Because they may they may say with their lips they believe in Christ, but with their actions they deny him. Amen? And even though sometimes that may not be clearly evidenced to us people, guess what? It's really clear to Jesus who searches hearts and minds. Amen? Who knows who's genuine and who's not? Amen? And even though men be fooled, listen, God will never be fooled. Either you're born again by the power of God's Spirit, and His Spirit is within you, and you're a new creation in Christ, and you live accordingly, or you're not. Amen? So, the rest of that question was, how do you explain that to kids? 
Well, I think we try to use this kind of language that makes it really clear when we, when we talk about, for example, just drawing a distinction between mere professors and true believers and explain, okay, here's what a mere professor is. It's somebody who's professing that they follow Jesus with their words, but with their actions, even though to us it may look like they're Christians because they do things that Christians do, there's things in their private lives or in their public lives that they're doing that are sinful and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And those kind of people, we just call those mere professors. We call those people who are hypocrites. They say one thing with their mouth and do something else with their hands. Right? And just drawing that, try to draw a simple distinction with the kids. But we don't want to be like that. We want to be true believers who obey the Lord Jesus Christ and we show him our faith by our ready obedience and by the fruit that we bear in our life. Amen? Did I answer that? Okay. All right. All right. So then, uh, on to verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. In describing their perseverance in what we command, which he described back in verse 215 as traditions, he yet again ascribes their obedience primarily to Christ when he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Notice the emphasis on doing the things that we command. Here he's not talking about just believing, although believing is one of the things he commands, but he's actually talking about acting on that faith. Amen? Not only that, but specifically in regard to specific commands. Right? And uh, Paul is pointing out something very specific here. The Christian faith is one filled with high and holy commandments given by our Lord and his apostles in the New Testament which are to be fully obeyed. And this obedience is a sign of true saving faith that has been wrought in a person by God's regenerating power. This is clearly seen as Paul assigns their perseverance and obedience to his commands as Christ's faithful work in them. And in contrast, of falling prey to the evil one. You see what he's saying? Verse 3 and 4 together. Right? The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, right? That you're doing and will continue to to do what we command. Paul's drawing this contrast, right? To those who are going to deceive and be be deceived and perish, right? And um, those who fall prey to the evil one, like he described back in chapter 2, there are those who took pleasure in wickedness, but did not love the truth so as to be saved, right? He's drawing a contrast between those who perish under the evil one and those who do what? Continue to do what we command. And then he kind of sews it up by saying, the Lord is faithful. He's going to strengthen and protect you, right? And he says here in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you're going to continue to obey. And here he's drawing the contrast between true believers and, non, and unbelievers. What is it? What is, the, what is the mark of the true believer in these verses? It's perseverance and obedience to the apostles' commandments. 
Amen? And so, if you will, even in the midst of that, he's saying God is faithful to bring this about in you true believers. Thus, again, we see this paradox. Right? The Lord is sovereign in our perseverance, and yet we've got to continue to do what he commands. Amen? You see that? Pretty clear stuff, I'd say. Okay, then. Even though it be true that Christ's work obedience in us by his faithfulness, nevertheless, we are charged to carry out obedience to his commands with our own hands. Amen? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. And do you see the context there? Paul is even talking about the faithfulness of God, and yet at the same time he's saying you must resist temptation and be obedient to Christ. But God is faithful and he's going to uphold you. He's going to give you the way of escape. Amen? And so it is that God is sovereign in our perseverance, and yet we need to remain steadfast and obedient to the Lord. Amen? And, and family, listen, for the Christian, what happens when you fail? We live in the goodness of God's gospel and His grace. Amen? I mean, even your sins are going to work for your good. Even the worst things in life are going to, God's going to cause them all to work together for your good. And in the end, listen, you're going to be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that give you an excuse to sin and to fall prey to temptation? Of course not. We're commanded to obey. Amen? But listen, so, so often we fall short. Amen? And when we fall short, listen, the Lord receives a repenting sinner every single time. How many times does the Lord receive a repenting sinner? Somebody tell me. Seventy times seven. So we know that you can repent at least 490 times. (laughs) Cindy's in trouble. She's on 489. No, you get the point, right? 70 times 7. What's the point? Somebody tell me. All the time. God receives a repenting sinner. Amen? Not only that, he tells us to receive a repenting sinner and to forgive him. He says, if your brother returns and repents, forgive him. Period. No qualifiers. But you've done this five times now. Are you with me? You get the point? Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, we keep coming back to God 485 times. When does God's grace run out? Tell me. Not for the broken and contrite of heart. Amen? Does that mean we have an excuse or a license for immorality? Absolutely not. What it means is we have a healer 
to heal us when we are broken and when we fail. We have a God who will strengthen us. He'll help us up. He'll dust us off. He'll wash us off, and he'll set us back on the path again. Amen? Amen. Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's a good question. What about the consequences of our sin? Well, we, we realize that when we make sinful choices, that there are always and inevitably consequences to those sinful choices. Amen? And concerning some sinful choices, there are greater consequences than other sinful choices. Okay, so when we talk about a true believer <laughs> sinning against God, we, there's a few things that we know right? We know that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and the eternal consequence of damnation has been canceled by the fact that Christ has paid the debt for that sin, and God will not hold us accountable for that on the day of judgment. Amen? Amen. However, there may be temporal <clears throat> consequences that take place in the world as a result of what we have chosen to do. You understand? And so as a result of that, then we are going to bear the consequences of that sinful choice, which many times is God's discipline to keep us on the straight and narrow, right? Um, but which always and inevitably, there will be consequences to sinful choices that we make. Your sin is going to find you out. Are you with me? And that's a hard thing, man. That's a hard thing. But nevertheless, even those things work for our good. Amen? And listen, this, this ought to be the atmosphere in the church, is that we, we realize how we're all subject to sin and failure, right? And so why are we here together? Well, one of the reasons why we're here together is to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Right? Amen? And then when we fail, for everybody else to go beat them over the head with a Bible. No, no. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> well, sometimes we do need to get beat over the head with a Bible, but we're also here, right, to come and he who is spiritual restore such a one in a spirit in a in a in a spirit of gentleness. Right? We're also here to help one another and to heal one another and to accept one another and to point one another to the truth and to give others counsel, right? I mean, isn't that how God treats us? Isn't that how Christ treats you? Every single time you sin, does not Christ come to you and bear you up in that? Does he not help you and strengthen you and forgive you and cleanse you and wash you and encourage you to face tomorrow? He does, doesn't he? Shouldn't that also be the atmosphere that we have in the church? Yes? yes. I agree. God help us. Doesn't mean we don't reprove. We do. Doesn't mean we don't correct and discipline. Christ corrects and disciplines those he loves. Amen? But we do it always with the motive of love and restoration. Right? And not only that, we do it very gently. And we do it very carefully and very prayerfully. Amen? And not only that, we take heed lest we fall into the same trap. Amen? 
In other words, we ha- we're humble enough to realize that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Amen? God help us. God help us to learn those lessons. God help us to be healing brothers and sisters. God help us to be the one who pours on the oil. Amen? And not only the one who has a sharp sword in his mouth, which sometimes is very necessary. You know, when you got cancer hanging off you, you need a knife. Right? God help us. A lot of times that takes careful balance, doesn't it? Yes? Yeah, on this verse, how do you explain to someone that it indicates legalism? about obeying the commands? Uh-huh. Uh, how do I explain that this indicates legalism? No. When a person says a verse like this uh-huh. indicates legalism, uh-huh. how do you explain that away? Well, I don't explain that away. I, I would say, like I said here, here's how I would address that. The Christian faith is one filled with high and holy commandments given by our Lord and his apostles in the New Testament, which are to be fully obeyed. So uh, what I would call legalism is commandments and traditions that we put on people's backs that are outside of the Bible, that are made by men and not by God. However, within the Christian faith, we have, as we would all acknowledge, many, many commandments that are given by Christ and the apostles that are to be fully obeyed. And, and not only that, Paul's going to show us in these coming verses, right, verses 6 through 10, that um, there has to be a process of discipline corporately within the church when we don't obey. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's an important distinction to make, I think, legalism. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to write that down, Bill. And, and um, I, I, there is, there are many commandments. In, in the New Testament, and guess what? We need to obey them. And guess what? When we don't need to obey them, I'm sorry, when we don't obey them, we need to be held accountable by one another for our disobedience, right? But, uh, but I'm, I'm going to write this down, and, and I, I'm, I, I really f- have felt the Lord talking to me about dealing with Romans 14, and I haven't had an, an opportunity to do that yet. And so maybe in the coming weeks we'll have an opportunity for that. Yes, ma'am. I agree with what you said about legalism being piling rules on that are in the scripture, but can, is legalism also teaching people that you have to obey the laws in scripture or you're not saved as a way of being saved? Absolutely. So she's saying legalism can also be teaching people things in scripture that they have to do or they're not saved. Okay. And uh, yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely, Carol. As a matter of fact, right, the, the greatest, the first, the primary and greatest heresy against the Christian faith is the heresy of the Judaizers, which w- what they were saying was you must obey the Old Testament law in order to have salvation, right? And so, of course, you know, Paul demolishes that, that doctrine, Right. In, in the book of Galatians, but also in other places. And, and so, yes, absolutely, there, there's also uh, legalism takes that form as well. Uh, the commandments that we're told to obey are strictly for the glory of God. They're not, I mean, our salvation is a done deal. Mm-hmm. But so our 
It's important for us to understand in studying legalism the balance between the grace of God and the law of God and how that relates to the fact that we're already saved and we're not meriting our salvation through obedience to God's commands. But instead, we obey God's commands because we have been saved, right? And so there's, there's an importance to understanding that. Terry? Oh, okay. All right. So, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to be reductionistic. I love it when Christians get excited about the Bible. I didn't mean to be reductionistic by saying legalism is only related to commands and traditions that men make outside of the Bible. That's certainly not true. Legalism can be much broader than that. And, of course, anytime you study legalism, you need to understand the bounds of your Christian liberty as well. And so there's there's kind of another side to that coin that needs to be discussed. And, and uh, so maybe the Lord will give us an opportunity to do that. I think it's I think it's a really important issue, um, you know, especially in our day when the American church has been so uh, uh, completely disintegrated by uh, denominationalism and doctrinal distinctive. That uh, you know, you you probably if you're here, you've probably been in five different churches or more in your life, you know, and uh, and in every set of those churches, there's a whole different kind of doctrinal distinctive and. Uh, Christians are always running around scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, time out. What is this whole deal, you know? And how do we make sense of, of uh, the difference in disputable matters and so on, which is, I think is Paul does a great job addressing in Romans 14. Okay, let's see here. Oh, good night, it's 1030. <laughs> okay. Let's pray. <laughs> Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see as we go through these verses of Scripture how the Scripture ought to be handled. That, Lord, it's, it's so important to understand Scripture in its context. Help us to see that, God. Help us to see all the rich content that you have in such short verses of Scripture. I pray that you would cause us then to meditate upon verses of Scripture that we read and to chew on them and to ingest them and to, to uh, consider and ponder all the rich things that you have said to us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us discerning hearts that ask the tough questions and, and, and give us hearts, Lord, that want to know the truth and want to understand clearly what you've said to us so that we can honor you with our lives. Now, Father, we thank you for the privilege of having such clear revelation in your scripture. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts ready to obey God. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.